Let's pray one more time. Father, as we open your word, we ask that you would speak to us, that your spirit would speak in between every line that I say, that we would hear your voice to comfort, to convict, to draw us to yourself. Uh, by all means, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you've played a, a sport growing up, you may have engaged in this terrible, awful activity known as suicides, right? You line up on the baseline, and, you know, if you're playing basketball, it's, you line up on the baseline, coach blows the whistle, you run to the foul line, then back to the baseline, then to the uh, midcourt, then back to the baseline, then to the next foul line, then back to the baseline, and then all the way there. And the whole time, you're what? You're sprinting as fast as you can. And then you do it again, and again, and again. And I remember as I was, uh, you know, on the, the freshman team in high school and I was, you know, running suicides with the rest of the team and what would often happen, you know, the people would start off really fast, moving, but, you know, as they continue to go through the suicide or, you know, the third or fourth one, everything in their body, everything in their mind saying, slow down, conserve energy, this is too much. And what would we do? Well, we'd start to slow down and not really give our all. And then I'd hear my, the coach bellow out. It happened eight times every practice. It's not how you start. It's how you finish. Anybody can start off strong, but it's, it's when you, you start, you know, you're feeling the pressure, you're feeling the hurt, and you're tempted just to slow down and not sprint to the end, and you're, that you, well, that you don't finish the rep. And life is like that, right? There's many people who start off strong, who, who go for it, and then something happens, conflict arises, or perhaps they just lose their, their drive and they, they slow down and they don't finish well. In this series that we've been going through, through the life of Saul, and you know, if you've been with us, uh, you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. But Saul, uh, as we learned last week, well, he started strong. There's a big threat Nahash the Ammonite is coming to gouge out the eyes of everybody in the city, and he, he raises up an army. He goes and he rescues the people of God. We, we rejoice with, with Israel. It's this, this new man, this new Adam, who's come to, to, to save God's people, to crush the head of the serpent. You know, this, you know, lower M Messiah that God has sent to deliver his people. And, you know, we're enthralled over it. However, things don't end well, do they? And if you would, you know, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, it's on page 286 in your pew Bibles, the red Bibles that are in front of you if you don't bring one. Um, but we're going to see the beginning of Saul's decline. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. So Saul was one years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel two years. And Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were from Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah and Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Now Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, 
And the Philistines heard about it and then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land. And he said, let the Hebrew hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. And when the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering, and just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and, he went to, and Saul went out to greet him. What? Have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, well, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Well, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And Samuel left Gilgal and he went up to Gibeah and Benjamin and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. What we're immediately struck with how easily people fall. How easily people fall apart. Now read with me verse 1 again. Depending on your Bible, it may read a little bit differently. But as we read verse 1, it says, you know, Saul was one years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel two years. Now your Bibles, including the ones in the pew, will probably read something like this. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Uh, and why, well, well, why the difference? Now, I don't get into text criticism too much. It may be the most boring thing to try to preach. It's basically trying to figure out, you know, what did the original text say? Now, if you look in your footnote, you're, pretty much every Bible is going to have a little footnote on that verse where it says, you know, 30 and 42 years, respectively. And it's, if you look down at your footnote, it's going to tell you something. That's not what the Hebrew reads. The Hebrew reads, Saul was one years old when he became king. Now, why do we have 30 there? Well, it's because it's obvious that Saul's older than one years old. He's not an infant leading the charge. He has a grown son who has his own command. Uh, so, well, what are we supposed to make of that? Well, 
Let's go with 30. That sounds about right. And then they get the, uh, you know, the number 42 from the book of Acts where it says that Saul reigned for 40 years. But again, this is not what the text says. The text says he was one years old. And well, why is that? Because if you remember back in chapter 10, verse 6, when Samuel, you know, he was anointing Saul and he said, there's going to be this amazing thing that's going to happen to you. Among these signs as God anoints you as king over Israel. He says, chapter 10, verse 6, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them, the prophets, and you will be changed into a different person. A new person. To use the language of the, of the New Testament, you will be a new creation. And Saul was one years old. And he had reigned two years. And what does it take for a new man with a new heart who's experienced the power of the Spirit, who's lived in victory, to fall apart. Pressure. Yeah. He's three years old, two years as king, but one big problem. Not every foe is vanquished as easily as Nahash the Ammonite. Not every enemy succumbs so easily. And as he takes his son who, who attacks Geba and he rouses the anger of the Philistines, the, the baddest men in town, well, we see him crumble. And so what do we, uh, well, what is his sin? Many have debated about this. And growing up, you know, what I was told that the sin is, it's probably not what the sin is. The sin is not that he uh, took on upon himself priestly duties. That he, you know, he set himself up as a priest by offering the sacrifice. There's no reason to, to suspect that as he offered the sacrifice, he did so apart from, from a priest who was with him. We read in you know, chapter 14 that Ahijah was there you know, as, a, as a priest who wore the ephod, who, who you know, administered for the Lord with him. No, that, well, what does Samuel say the problem is? Read with me again, verse 13. He says, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. And what was the command? To wait for Samuel. And he did not wait. Now, as we've been going through this series, and I've already hinted at it multiple times, that you know, part of the, the main overall theme and thrust of Samuel is this idea that, that the God of the Scriptures, the God of the Bible, the God whom we worship, he raises up the humble and he brings down the proud. And we've talked about how humility is not the denial of the gifts and the position and the privilege which God has given you, like clever men pretending to be they're stupid or pretty women pretending that they're ugly, but recognizing who you are under God. And we see here that the, the charge against Saul, even though he's king, is that he did not obey the word of the Lord. That the word of the Lord is to be obeyed regardless of your status. 
regardless of who you think you are and how, well, don't, how crazy that may have seemed to the rest of the world, the rest of the ancient Near East, that the king, you know, the king is supposed to be the one who speaks for God. The, the kings are often the ones who are called the image of God, who administer the divine authority to the people. But Samuel, as he looks at Saul, he says, you have not obeyed. You have not done what the Lord said. And this is the call to to real religious and Christian humility. That no matter what your position, your power, your status, your money, your wealth, or any of these things, you may be a man of authority, but you are a man under the authority of the word of God. Robert Bruce, he was a, the 16th and 17th uh, century Scottish preacher. And oftentimes his church would be, uh, well, King James VI of Scotland, later become King James I of England. He would attend his church. And King James was, well, obnoxiously rude often in the services. And one day as, as uh, Robert Bruce is preaching, King James is carrying on in conversation you know, with his courtiers around and you know, just going on. Eventually, Bruce stops and goes silent. James, kind of hearing the silence, he, well, he, he goes silent too. Bruce begins preaching again, and then well, James begins talking again. The same thing happened again. And then a third time, he, he begins to preach again, and, and James begins to talk again, and he eventually stops, and he addresses him directly, and he says, you know, it's been expression of the wisest of kings that when the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. Well, the lion of Judah, of the tribe of Judah, is, roar, is roaring the voice of his gospel now, and it becomes all petty kings of the earth to be silent. We forget that, don't we? In an age which is not unique to our age, but in an age where it seems that the celebrities, the politicians, the who's who seems that to think that the rules and the laws are for everybody else, that they, are too, they, too, they too are men and women under the authority of the word of God, that the accusing word of God does not go over them. It doesn't, you know, They're not able to elide it. And no Ivy League educated lawyers, no law legal loopholes, no court packing can escape the accusing word of the Lord to the greatest of society, to the petty kings of the earth. And it's easy to forget that we too, in our status, are men and women under the authority of God. And his accusing word strikes us as well. And we see in in Saul as he disobeyed the word of the Lord that came through Samuel, that he did not listen to it. And he suffers. He does not finish well. And the Lord will ultimately bring him down. What does it take to make a moral monster? I don't think at this point Saul is a moral monster. But what does it take to take a a normal person and have them commit atrocities? 
often it's less than we think. Hannah Arendt, she was a Jewish Holocaust survivor, and you know, after the war, she you know, is a philosopher and author, and she wrote this pretty uh, famous article for the New Yorker in 1963. It was subtitled, Adolf Eichmann and the Banality of Evil. Now, Eichmann, he was, a, uh, he was the one who was in charge of the logistics for getting Jews and others to concentration camps to be exterminated. He would, you know, put them into ghettos and then often, and then eventually into concentration camps. And he was captured and he stood trial in Jerusalem in a very famous trial. And what Arendt, you know, wrote as she, as she watched the trial was just noting how, how different Eichmann seemed than what you would expect. The man responsible for the murder of millions of people the one who is described as a man obsessed with a dangerous and insatiable urge to kill or a dangerous and perverted sadistic personality. And yet, as she watched him and, and heard him answer questions and, and, re, you know, and researched him, she realized this man is normal. Normal. Yeah, and monsters exist. You know, the people who have complete no regard to for anything that is right or human value and who, who do exist in this other plane that just want to kill, yet they're out there. But what is remarkable for her, what's remarkable for us, is not that this, somebody like Adolf Eichmann was able to do what he did and yet be completely normal and have positive traits and being a good father and a loving husband. And yet, he carried out one of the worst atrocities in human history. And very oftentimes, the worst atrocities in history are not carried out by the monsters that we see, but by bureaucrats just doing their job. Men who had orders and commands and just decided I was going to do a good good job at my job without any sort of thought to the repercussions. Men like Eichmann who got excited about fixing the logistics as if he were delivering packages for UPS rather than people for the SS. The bureaucrats who administered the Red Terror laying, you know, well, leaving the USSR drenched in the blood of innocent men whom they deemed enemies of the state. My point in this is not to say that Eichmann was a good guy. He wasn't. Or that he didn't have responsibilities for the atrocities he, he helped per perpetuate. He did. My point is that normal people can morally and spiritually fall apart quite easily. It doesn't take the monster who's out there to do these things, but very oftentimes it's, it can be us. It can be you. It can be me. To be put into the right situation, a situation perhaps not, well, with pressure and demands, and you just put your head down and you do what, what you think is best, and you're outside of, well, 
realizing what the call is on you in that moment. And as Saul, he, he begins to falter in his moral and spiritual life. And I, I just take a moment, though, to imagine being Saul where, in his position. Your son attacks a, an enemy outpost. That's all right. He seems to do good. And they respond, not kind of in kind with, you know, a few thousand troops. No, they, they muster their, a huge army. You're sitting there with 3,000 men ish. They have 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and men as many as the sand on the seashore, uncountable, incalculable. What are you going to do? Not only are you outnumbered, vastly outnumbered, you are outarmed. They have chariots, you have pitchforks and hoes. It says, you know, chariots were like, it's like having a tank in the Civil War. They were, you know, overpowered weapon, ready to, to destroy. And we read a little bit later that, that the only people in Israel who had a sword or a spear were Saul and Jonathan. Everyone else was just farmers. You're outnumbered. You're outarmed. You're surrounded. They, you know, the Philistines will break up into three things and just completely surround your, your area. And not only that, but you are hemorrhaging Men, the few men left that you have are scattering and fleeing. They see, the, they see the numbers, they see what you're up against, and they are not sticking by you. We, did you catch the, the last verse that we read? Saul is down to 600 men. 600. He had 3,000, which is already way outnumbered, and now he has 600. He's lost 80% of his troops. The attack seems imminent, People are leaving in droves, and Samuel hasn't shown up. Did he leave too? Did he see the writing on the wall? Did he realize that being around Saul right now is perhaps certain death? Am I out here by myself? So what am I supposed to do? Maybe, maybe I can gain favor from the Lord by offering a sacrifice. Maybe since Samuel is too scared to show up, that it's left to me to do. Maybe, at the very least, offering a sacrifice to let people know that God is on our side will keep them from leaving. What am I supposed to do? The word of the Lord is to be obeyed regardless of status, but the, the word of the Lord is to be obeyed also regardless of circumstance. And we can understand Saul's predicament and his, and his failing in some ways, it's so understandable. And yet when we take the scripture serious, seriously, yes, it's understandable, but in no way is it justifiable. We can understand what would drive a man to do it. We can sympathize with that impulse. And yet the word of the Lord says, you have done a foolish thing. 
in some ways, real faithfulness begins under duress. Real faithfulness begins when we're scared and anxious and it seems to cost us so much to obey. Perhaps for this reason, the author of Hebrews writes of Jesus that you know, Jesus, the, the eternally coexistent Son of the Father in perfect love from eternity past until now, yet Jesus, he says, learned obedience through suffering. That there was a, a measure with which that Jesus was unable to be fully obedient, fully faithful until his faithfulness caused him to suffer, put him under duress. So what does it take for a new man and a new creation to fall apart? Oftentimes pressure. The other fascinating thing is that even if none of the men of Saul had left, he'd still be completely underwater. He'd still be completely outmatched. You know, this past summer, as my family was, we uh, took a, a vacation in the, in the Poconos, and the day that we arrived, it was kind of a rainy day, and so and they had a, a pool in the community where we were staying. And so, so we went to the pool and, um, you know, just playing in the water with, with, my, with my kids and I was with one of my daughter who, daughters and kind of took off her floaty jacket thing and just kind of like swam with her. And while we were in the shallower end, it's like three and a half feet tall and still like over her head and all that. But, um, you know, I kind of let her go and try to practice swimming and, and all that. And it's, you know, she's fine. And then eventually she has to, to go out into the, the deeper end with me. And so, you know, I took her out to the deeper end. And, and then, I, well, I wanted her to, you know, practice swimming out there. And, you know, it's probably like five, five and a half feet, and, you know, she sees the depth of the water on me. But, you know, I try to let her go to, you know, practice her swimming, and immediately, eyes wide open, just sheer terror on her face, and just clings to me with everything that she, you know, everything that she has, and begins crying. She's like, I want to go back. From an objective perspective, it's like she's no more in danger in the deep end than she was in the shallow end. That by herself, she couldn't survive. By herself, the water was still too deep for her. And in either place, was it too deep for her father? And yet, being in the deep end caused terror and panic. She freaked out and flipped out in, in some ways in a in very illogical way, a way not unlike Saul, a way not unlike you and I. Beloved, we can't survive in the shallow end any more than the deep end. But it's a good thing it's not too deep for the Father. He secures us in the deep end, too. And we can trust him. We can trust him when it costs us things. What does it look like to trust such a God? 
Perhaps as a student, when you're in class with, with people and, and it seems like, you know, if you don't join in with the lewd and crude jokes, that you'll be left alone and you're wondering, well, can I stand up and do what is right? Or do I need just to play along with what everyone else is doing? Or perhaps being in a situation at school or at work where there's a demand to celebrate sexual practices that God has condemned. And if you don't do it, you're on the outside. If you don't do it, you may flunk a class. If you don't do it, you may be fired. But we trust the Father in the deep end. Perhaps if there's an expectation to turn a blind eye to an immoral practice, to, to change numbers at a job in order to protect the bosses that are over top of you. To do the things that God has said no, and if you know that there's a, a good chance that you will suffer if you don't do it, will we trust him there? Will we revert to the old man? Or will we step into the new creation, which we've been called to be, with a new heart? I think that this, this passage may have been in Paul's mind when he reminds us to, you know, you were taught with regard to your formal way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on your new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, right? This is the call. It's like you are, you're standing between your old self and your new self. And what does it take for you who have been made new creation, who have been given a new heart, who have been empowered by the Spirit for life and godliness to revert to the old patterns? What kind of pressure is needed? What kind of situation would make you turn a blind eye to do what is right and good and true and holy? What kind of pressure to compromise just, just a little bit? And if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, it often doesn't take that much. And oftentimes I want to excuse it as it's just a little thing. But as John Wesley reminds us, well, indeed, there's no little sin because there's no little God to sin against. And in general, what, humans seem, what to humans seems the small offense, to him who knows the heart, it may be a heinous crime. Beloved, you have been made a new creation to walk in his ways. So what are we to do? What are we to do when we've failed, when we've when we've blown it, when we've crumbled in some ways big, some ways small, well, the only thing to do is to, to fix our eyes, to, to cast our hope on the one who did not blow it, the one who succeeded, the better king, the, the, the true and final Adam who does not fall to the temptations of the serpent like Saul did, the one who, when he was abandoned, by his disciples, when his family was too ashamed to call them his own, 
when he was left alone to not only potentially lose a battle, but to go to his imminent and assured death. Yet he did not turn. He did not waver. He went forward anyway. There, the, the, the you know, eternally coexistent son of the father who did what we could not do, who did what we will not do, who was obedient to him even unto death, even when it cost him his life, even when it cost him suffering, who was faithful regardless of circumstance, regardless of cost, to fix your eyes upon him, the one who makes you right. With that, I'd like to call up Pastor West as we prepare to take communion. Let's pray. Kind Father, Lord, we, uh, we know that we have fallen short, that we have not obeyed your word regardless of circumstance, that we have given ourselves to fears and anxiety, that we have caved and crumbled and compromised. But Lord, as we partake of the blood and the flesh of your Son, restore to us your salvation. The new heart that you have given, cleanse it once again. The new man and the new woman that you've called us to be, restore to us that identity. And in all things, Lord, glorify yourself through your saints, we pray in the wonderful and the powerful name of Jesus.